out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the English musician, singer, songwriter, composer. It is going to be the one and only Alan White, who's worked with such people as Morrissey, Madonna, Chris Brown, the Black Eyed Peas, and many, many more. Anyway, this is the interview. And after several minutes of casual chat to get to know each other, as you do, um, we got down to talking about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. And then I mentioned a bit about um, the back, his background, musical background, and the world that is rockabilly. And um, this was Alan's response. Alan, tell us more about that rockabilly world. Yes, yes. Um, growing up, absolutely, because I used to go to the rockabilly clubs. And I liked the music, but I always liked alternative music as well. Excuse me. But I kept that kind of private, obviously, because in the rock and roll clubs and rockabilly clubs, it kind of would have been frowned upon. But I I saw bands like, you know, The Cult and The Damned and The Smiths and The Mission and bands like that. I, I kind of, I was kind of like, these guys are like, the fifth generation of what all the early sun recording stars were doing. Yeah. You know, touring and being guitar based bands, you know, it just was kind of a fifth generation of that really. That's, that's kind of how I viewed it. So I always liked alternative music. I mean, I grew up with very eclectic tastes. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, because it's always interesting, because I'm in my mid-50s now, I was born 64, you're a few years younger. My formative moment was kind of the early 70s, really, with, you know, watching Top of the Pops and seeing all the, you know, the glam rock stuff of Glitter, Sweet, you know, Alice Cooper doing Schools Out, which was an amazing anthem. And luckily it was 74, 75 when David Bowie, I saw Space Oddity and went and bought that single with the B-side of Changes and Velvet Goldmine. So what was your kind of moment that happened that you thought, this is interesting. It's gonna, it's gonna sound hilarious, but <clears throat> as a child, I grew up with a lot of my mum's records, things like, you know, Hard Day's Night album by the Beatles, and then there was the Hollies, and then there was the Doors, and was Jimi Hendrix. So I grew up with a lot of hippie stuff. And then she had, you know, some rock and roll records like, Elvis and Ray Charles and stuff like that. Um, I guess I always remember the iconic Smith's Top of the Pops performance of what difference does it make? Right. That was like a turning point to me. I was like, who's this cool guy that kind of looks like Buddy Holly with this huge quiff and that big, dark, chiming intro. I was like, these guys are brilliant. You know, because everything else was synth pop, like Ultravox and um, um, Paul Young and and Human League and, and all this kind of stuff. And they came out and it was like such a fresh yes. 
you know. So, you, so your family background then, you had quite hip parents, because mine, mine were much more the country and western, you know, Jim Reeves. It wasn't great. But my dad did like Elvis, but at the time, you know, he, when he got married, he was like working class where you sort of had to sell all your possessions, get yourself a bit of money, get home and try and sort of do it. And then decades later, you go, oh, we'll buy a record player. So we didn't really have, we had the radio, Radio 2 on during this sort of that, a lot of that, you know, growing up period when you were still at home with your mum or dad. But um, yes, but it wasn't, it wasn't a hit. We weren't into that kind of alternative rock of the 60s at all. It's funny, you know, I mean, I, I just missed out on groups like, I remember, you know, when Elvis died, I was 10. And I vaguely remember how shocking the Sex Pistols were at nine, you know, 10 years old. Um, I remember the Bill Grundy interview. I remember seeing that, weirdly enough. Um, so I, I grew up with kind of punk, but I didn't quite latch onto it because I was just a little bit too young. It was a little bit before me, but I did like it. I loved the clash. Yeah. And Judd Strummer was married to my step cousin. And I got to meet him quite a few times. And um he was incredibly nice. And you know so when did an you absolute when, legend sorely what, sorely missed well why actually that's quite impressive actually that was um so when did your your a musical instrument appear in your life that's a good question well <laughs> i could go right back i mean i started at age of four my mum put me into kind of a music program and funny enough i got <laughs> i got kicked out of that class for for being a bit unruly um, <laughs> but I had piano lessons from about seven to 14 and then I decided I wanted to be in a rockabilly band. So I sang and I played drums standing up, you know, just on one snare drum, a little bit like Slim Jim, I suppose. Yeah. And then when I was 13, I was like, well, that's pretty silly. You know, I really should be playing guitar and sing. You know, so I started playing acoustic guitar and singing. And then, you know, it, it's funny. There was this long road going into an area that I eventually became quite good at. And yes. thanks to meeting up with Morrissey, that was... Well, that absolutely. Was, that but really, before like, that, steered me in that direction. Because there was the whole rockabilly world that had sort of started, I suppose, in the late 70s, which had people like uh, the Rockettes with, um, yeah. with Levi... Dexter from the Rockettes. I know him very well, actually, Levi. He's back, back living in England now. Yes. Well, those guys from Essex, so they got picked up by Lee Black Childers and taken over to New York to sort yeah. of a band, which is quite boggling as a story. And they were kind of in Smutty Smith and, and people like that. Amazingly good-looking blokes with amazing hair. And, and that, with that story in itself was extraordinary, but they were the kind of the forerunners of the people like the Cramps and um, yes, all those other bands who came on well, came in their slipstream really, didn't they? You could you could say that really Mark Bolan and glam early glam rock, you know, like um, Mark Bolan, Mungo Jerry, and a little bit of Gary Glitter, should we have to say his name? But you know, they kind of opened the door to revisiting. 50s rock and roll and then you had bands like mud 
and shawaddy waddy that oh, kind of tried to go closer to it. But then, you know, shaking Stevens and and then proper rockabilly came in with the polecats and the stray cats, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but it, it had been building really. And Mark Bolan kind, kind of was a big instigator of that. When you listen to Ride the White Swan, and it's just a fantastic rockabilly song, really. Yeah. It really is. It's fantastic. I but loved with, I loved that. But I was going to say with the Rockettes, they, they had a purity with their kind of style, and especially Levi, you know, I mean, you know, it wasn't going to be diluted. So he quickly kind of left that band when they sort of got a producer who wanted to give him a bit more of a commercial sound. And he sort of stuck with it, didn't he? He wasn't going to sort of bury that kind of the essence that was kind of rock. He, he did. You know, Brian Setzer auditioned, funny enough, I think, to join and play with him. Yeah. But then Brian then formed the, the Stray Cats. So Levi, Dexter and Ripcords, I believe, was the was the uh, very first band that he had. I think they started around 77. Like they were really, really early, you know. So um, yeah. But then amazing, sort of amazing so stuff. then you had that kind of that punk period and then the slightly post-punk and then then for me, indie pop was kind of the years between 83 to 87, which is really just the years of the Smiths. And then you had Ecstasy came along, you had that whole sort of dance scene. Yeah. Then you had Seattle with the grunge scene coming on. So every generation, you know, that kind of that formative years, the late teens or mid-teens, you know, want their kind of people. They don't want someone who's three or four years old. So things move really quickly. So what were you doing kind of in the 80s? Were you in kind of forming various bands, kind of learning, learning the business? Yeah, well, I, I tried. I tried to be in. It was funny. I was in rockabilly bands, and I was in rock bands. Like I had um. I had a rockabilly band called Born Bad. Uh, which had Spencer Cobrin, um, playing drums, <clears throat> and a, a, a guy on bass called Ian Arrow, <laughs> and Guy Bolton, on lead guitar. And this was around. 86, 87. And then that disbanded. But for some reason, I stayed friends with Spencer. And he said, you know, we should form another band, another rockabilly band. And so we formed the Memphis Sinners. And that's how I got to meet Gary Day. And um, this other guitarist called John O'Malley, who's a great, terrific guitarist, a lovely fella too. Um, and Spencer, Gary, and myself wound up joining Morrissey's band. And I would never have thought that because we were in a little rockabilly band together, you know? Yeah. And for some reason, I always the associated rockabilly with <laughs> indie alternative music. So, you know, I didn't think it was quite a shock that Morrissey was kind of dabbling into that area. Yeah, and I Could guess you... we had the right image and the right look. Because at that at stage, because right in the in the eighties, it gets quite amazing. I mean, actually, I slightly I said the cramps, didn't I? I really meant the straight cats. I love the cramps. The cramps were amazing, and they started around seventy seven. And it's funny, you know, I I've got this theory on a style of the cramps. The cramps are kind of like a rockabilly version of Ramones or something. They're kind of punkabilly, you know? 
And then you've got the meteors who I think were psychobilly. Like they kind of coined that phrase, but the cramps heavily influenced them, but they were more rockabilly than the cramps. You know? Yes, but then you had those other bands like the Guana Bats and you had King Kurt. They, yeah, well, they, they, they joined shortly after and they're terrific bands, but the Meteors were absolutely the first. Yes. Then, and then the Stingrays, and then I think it was the Guana Bats, but I could be wrong, I don't know. But Yes, well, it's, it's kind of interesting. I suppose having done this show for quite a while, and I've sort of interviewed most of those people now from those bands, it is kind of like I just had no idea that there was quite such a lot going on in the 80s. You know, it's like I had this little narrative that I lived through, and then I've sort of gone back and thought, Okay, there was just a lot of music going on. And also the thing about that period was that you had those gatekeepers. You had kind of John Peel, who was like, I thought, you know, was tiny, but every person who listened to John Peel basically recorded his show and then listened to that tape for, you know, weeks afterwards and kept it decades. You know, then you had the NME. Then every small town and club had an indie night, didn't they? So people were able to go out and sort of play. So the scene did get quite committed and quite, people could sort of play away from their normal neighbourhood, you know, instead of just playing in front with friends and family, anybody else who can emotionally blackmail to see, you can sort of suddenly go around the country playing all these gigs. Well, I, I think the 80s was the most diverse um, musical tastes being played and being heard by the public. I mean, the, the, the industry was very healthy then. You had lots of chart shows. Top of the Pops was huge. Um, so there was so many variety of styles that could chart and yes. it was really healthy. It was really great. So look, today we just lumbered with, I God knows what, <laughs> mainstream death, you know, I, I we had and no COVID idea. was killing everything. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it, that, it was a great time, you know. So then, so then when you sort of got, how did you get the call from Morrissey to sort of be part of the, the band or be the band? Well, it's interesting enough. I used to go to a rockabilly club in Kentish Town that was called the Camden Workers Social Club. And it was on every Thursday or every other Thursday, I can't remember. But um, apparently Morrissey went there one week when I wasn't there. And I heard he was looking for musicians. And I was like, shoot, darn, I reckon missed it, you know. Um, but I know he's going to come back. So I got prepared. I recorded four songs onto a C90 cassette and I put my name on it, you know, and telephone number. And I figured, well, you know, if I just recall four instrumental tunes that's kind of up his alley of what he might be looking for, just to show him that I could play, because yeah. I could program drums then and play bass and guitars. And I had a little Tascam four-track recorder, and I, I recorded four instrumental tunes that I thought would be up his alley, just to show him that I could play. And so the idea was I'd go back there and, He'll be there and I'll just go up to him and, and give him the cassette. So what happened is I think two weeks passed and on the second 
And week I went back to the club and sure enough, he was there and everyone was like, oh, wow, Morrissey's here. And I walked up to him. I said, I heard you're looking for musicians. I play guitar, a little bit of piano and harmonica. I'm the man for the job. Here's a tape to show you I can play. Give me a call. And I just walked off and I didn't expect anything. <laughs> and I think about three or four weeks later, I, um, whilst Bora had also been angling himself in there. So boss calls me, he says, hey, you know, Morrissey's doing a session at Hukem Manor. He wants you to come down and do it. And in that session was Boz, Johnny Bridgewood, myself. And I think it was Andrew Parisi who had done drums on, on Pregnant for the last time. And Clive Langer was producing it uh, because it was part of the Kill Uncle sessions. Um, and this was in 1990. And um, I think December 1990. And to be honest, I was a little bit out of my depth because they didn't want me to play guitar on Pregnant for the last time. He wanted me to play piano. And it was really, really fast. And I'm more of a guitar player than a piano player. So I was a little bit out of my depth and I kind of failed the session. And also I was very nervous and jittery and I probably talked too much to Morrissey. And the, the session kind of got aborted and I got blamed for ruining, ruining the session and Boz was very angry at me. You ruined the session. And I was like, well, you know, I'm sorry. I felt rotten. I felt terrible. Anyway, I won't tell you what I said, but I swore, I swore at both of them. <laughs> I said, if, you know, if they can't handle me for being me, then they can off, you know? Yes. Um, but anyway, so March rolls around 1991 and me, Gary Day, Spencer Cobrin, after rehearsal for Memphis Sinners, which was a little rockabilly band that I had, um, we were having a drink at the Richard Steele's in Belsize Park. In walks Morrissey, and this was upstairs, which was the quieter area. It had a pool table up there, but it, not many people knew there was an upstairs part to it. So most people drank downstairs and we were sitting in there having a drink. My hair was washed out. I looked like a total donut. <laughs> um, so I had the courage. I walked over to Morris. Oh, all right, Morrissey, how you doing? Uh, do you remember me? It's, it's Alan. Oh, yes, yes. How, how are you? He says, I'm okay. He goes, what you've been doing? I said, well, we just, I just finished up rehearsal with, with these boys and was just having a drink in here. And then he said to me, do you think you and your friends would be interested in posing as my backing band for my next video? And that's when I knew I had a second lifeline. I was like, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, absolutely, would love to, you know? And so he quickly drank his drink and we had a brief chat. I can't remember really what else was said, you know? And you know, what you've been doing? And, and so I walked over to the boys elated and I was like, hey, look, Morrissey's asked us to pose as his backing band. Gary, funny enough, was like, I don't want to 
bloody play with that weirdo or something (laughs) really derogatory you know I was like no you don't understand man this is huge this is huge just do it right so that wound up being the the sing your life video and Mark Nevin who wrote most of the kill uncle songs was the musical director guitarist and we literally showed up I didn't even know the song so we mined at the Camden Workers Social Club, which is where I met Morrissey, the Rockabilly Club, you know, yeah. eight months or nine months prior. And um, Chrissy Heim was in that video. Um, lots of my friends were in that video from the actual club. Um, and we were just miming. We didn't even know the song, you know. We weren't given, like, the tune to learn or anything. So it's just like, I don't know how this song goes, just, <laughs> we're just <laughs> miming, you know. Well, anyway, well, it turns out that Morrissey wanted to go out and tour. And he said, Mark Nevin's pulled out, you know, do you know, do you, do you know a, a guitarist, musical director? I said, actually, I do. And I got Boz back into, back into the gig. You know, so it was kind of like it was kind of like a nice redemption. Because it's quite strange because David Bowie had a slightly similar thing, didn't he, throughout a lot of his life. You know, he'd always wanted to work with a very strong guitarist. He always said he wanted to work with his Jeff Beck. And obviously he was never going to work with Jeff Beck, but he had, you know, Mick Bronson, then he had Carlos Alomar, then he had um, uh, Reeves Gable. Mick Ronson was a different beast, though. He was No one can touch Mick Ronson. Yes. But he always had that kind of musical director next to him that, that kind of brought it out. But he was also, throughout his life, I think he worked with Ke- someone like Kevin Armstrong, who also, he just said, could you just do the music? And Kevin Armstrong's a great guitar player. He, I think he, he wrote Ouija Board, Ouija Board, didn't he? Did all the guitars on that. It's really tasty, oh, really nice. Yes, you probably, yes. Which is quite weird, because in the 80s, we forget this, but they were like, you know, the main people who... who just had to do say one thing and get the headlines of like Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, and Morrissey. So yeah. it is quite extraordinary that 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 someone like you know like you couldn't. I suppose Prince was also quite strange in his ability to sort of hire and fire and change quite quickly Prince as well. Which is so, interesting, you know. I think he was one of these artists that was better live, maybe. You know, because I I I wanted to see more the Hendrix type of Prince, you know. And I felt like a lot of his hits or or songs that he put out suffered from, you know, that the typical atypical eighties production, gated drums, and you yes. know, but it was quite strange because I know fun synths and stuff. And it was like the guy was just a beast on guitar. Like, why didn't you just let rip and like, you mm. know, give Eddie Van Halen a run for the money or something? I don't like, know. I saw the Love Sexy tour and then the next two and then I got slightly bored of Prince but when he used to just kind of rock out because he was playing all those gigs and then he was going to after shows you know yeah, to just... be on his flares though and high heels wasn't my favorite no you know but uh, love... <laughs> <laughs> but that's, Morrison that's... said something really funny didn't he he said uh Ponce, I mean Prince, if he lived in Wigan, he wouldn't last five minutes. I always remembered that in the enemy, and I did laugh because it was so true. It was like yeah. Prince walked down the street, Grimsby or Wigan, 
dressed head to foot in purple, you know, with flares and and the kind of high heel boots that he wore, he would have he would have died, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't he wouldn't survive that long, not even in um, most times. But then, you know, because your the the album, your Arsenal, was this kind of amazing because Kill Uncle wasn't the greatest album of the world, was it really? Let's face it. But King... You know what? It's it's really underrated. To be honest, you know, that vocal style and the, the mellowness really suits Morrissey, I think. And I, I, you know, I think maybe some of the instrumentation or the way it was recorded could have been better on Kill Uncle, but it's it's a great record. It's very underrated. Like I loved R. Frank. That's my favorite like Morrissey solo record that I didn't write. Yes, I think that's amazing. Like that's equally up there with what difference does it make by the Smiths. I mean the Smiths were just amazing. Um, I was a huge fan of theirs. I know. Um, just they couldn't do any wrong, you know. They looked great. They sounded great. They sounded like nobody else, you know. Like I said, they were up against uh, classic Nouveau and Bronski beat, and you know, Human League and Paul Young, and then really mainstream stuff, you know. And they were just like, "What is this?" <laughs> it was so out there on a limb. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I do sort of feel that when the Smiths appeared, those bands that had been quite big before them, like, I suppose, Echo and the Bunny Men, who looked kind of quite happy. I love it. the Bunny Men. I but love then, that. Man. But then when the Smiths appeared, this life, they almost made a lot of those bands look a little bit like old hat, because Morrissey and Marr was just so unbelievable. And then for five years, they just didn't, everything they released, everything they did was just an event. And no one could touch them really. They just looked, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought they were just musical perfection really. So they were, I mean, they just, they looked brilliant and they sounded like nobody. Yeah. You know, I mean, it sometimes, you know, when there's great cohesion or a great chemistry, you don't mess with it. And I, honestly, if I was, it might sound a little bit blowing my own trumpet here, but like the closest, Morrissey solo band that got closer close to that cohesion was the your Arsenal lineup. Yes, well, it's, I really uh, believe I really believe so because we were a band, you know. Like I was in a band with Spencer and Gary, and I pulled in Boz, who I knew since I was eleven years old because he was good friends with my brother. Um, so we all knew each other, and you know, we we had our our trade blows and stuff like that. But, you know, sometimes that's, you know, sometimes things don't have to run smoothly for it to be a great chemistry. And there really was a great chemistry. Like when we started doing the Kill Uncle tour, we were a little bit overexcited. And where we lacked in technical ability, I mean, to be honest, we were a little bit ropey during the Kill Uncle tour. We were kind of all over the place. But boy, we looked good. No one could stop us, you know? <laughs> but by the Your Arsenal tour, it was like, yeah, we're really on it now. And Mick Ronson was a big part of that. Mick was one of the nicest, most spiritual kind of people or person I've ever met. Just had a great energy. And I had no idea that he was like, had six months to live 
or whatever it was. Yeah. And we knew he was ill. There was times when, you know, he'd go and sit down on the couch and he felt a little bit tired and had to rest. And he had this own juicer thing and he would make like, you know, ginger, ginseng and, you know, coriander and carrot drink or something, you know. Like he, he was really on doing healthy kind of pro shakes type yes. stuff. Um, but the, produ- but the, the production sound of that album is pretty incredible, isn't it? It's very alive. There's something quite extraordinary about every of those songs when you play, you know, every of those it's tracks. Consistent, it's consistent from start to finish, you know? And um, just Mick was great, you know? It, it's funny, I think in a way Mick probably saw a younger version of himself in me and Gary and, and, and all the guys in the band, you know, to a certain degree. He saw our green eyes, if you know, know what I mean, like our desire to improve and, yeah. and to play and to be in a band and have that excite thing. So I felt a very strong spiritual connection to Mick, but Mick was such a tremendous guitar player. I mean, he did all the atmospheric Ebo lead guitar parts on Seasick Yet Still Docked. And he said, hey, Morrissey, I put down some guitars last night on on, uh, on Seasick Yet Still Docked. I'd like to play it to you. I wonder what you think about it. And we went down there like, you know, 11 a.m. in the mornings, played it, and we just, our jaws just hit the floor. We were like, what? Um, and in a way, that atmosphere of Ebos and, and that kind of stuff really got taken on to Voxel and I, the, the following album, to a yes. certain degree. But Voxel probably would have been like your Arsenal part two, would have been a bit harder edged and, you know, more rocking, I think. So you know, instead of a more chilled record like it, it became. And, yes, because um, your Arsenal does have so many great anthems and tomorrow which it finishes with is quite incredible can you remember that coming together yeah well i wrote the demo to tomorrow and i think i worked out the end part this little piano thing i worked out the the ending on the piano on my own home piano at my mum's house or something and so I just played that at the end. But to be honest, you know, I had a really bare basic bass line and Gary Day really put an iconic bass line onto that song and totally took it into a different area. And then Boz added a really neat lead guitars too, you know. Boz and Gary, they really helped shape in many ways yes. that song. You must yeah. have been you must have been amazed and pleased with the way it felt and sounded by the end of it. Yeah, I mean it was monstrous, you know. But and Mick made made us sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah. interesting because I've been listening to a podcast, Main Man Productions, which has got Tony DeFries, and um, they were you know talking about the whole life of David Bowie. And Mick Ronson is kind of like, well, it were, if it wasn't Mick. 
you know, it wouldn't have happened, basically. You know, he, he should have been credited on virtually everything that they did during their period together. Cause Mick wrote Walk on the Wild Side. Mick scored all the orchestration for Life on Mars and the orchestration, I mean, literally scored, mean, meaning he could write music, score music, read music. I mean, the guy was a freaking genius and the most humble, kindest soul. And like, he elevated Lou Reed to a different level. He elevated David Bowie to a ridiculous level. Bowie in the 70s wouldn't be so iconic if it wasn't for Mick and the boys up there in Hull, you yeah. know, but mainly Mick for sure. Mick was a total unsung hero and really was not treated that great, you know. It's true. I mean, he got, I think, I think he got paid quite well for producing the Your Arsenal album, but like he really didn't make that much money for all that hard work that he did you know and Bowie Bowie was a little bit naughty you know <laughs> yes well I think Bowie and DeFries kind of yeah they didn't um, yeah especially well, the I met two. Bowie a few times and, and he was such a nice guy you know he seemed really really nice and really cool so yeah but then another album which I think is brilliant so you'll probably help this but um, Men Adjusted now that's one of those albums that I just thought was quite strong in places. I, you know, for a for a particular year that got played all the time. But that's one of those albums that everyone just coughs and then moves on. What was, what was your feeling about that particular experience? I think it's a really consistent record. Is it the most upbeat record? Maybe not. But in terms of a big, large body of work, it's really consistent. Maybe bar two of my songs that I wrote, which is uh, Royce Keane, was a little bit throwaway. And um, Papa Jack wasn't amazing, but all the B sides, the actual funny enough, the the reissue that he did with the bonus tracks and everything, I think that's great. Morrissey was right to admit those two songs off the album of mine, to be honest. Yes, they probably didn't fit on the deluxe editions track yeah. listing or something, and again, you know, a bit like. A bit like Tomorrow, you've got that track called um, Trouble Loves Me, which I know you didn't co-write, but you... I did, I did, I wrote that one. You write, oh, right, that's one of those classics, isn't it? Yeah, well, I figured out that I wrote 72 songs with Morrissey, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I did write that. Funny enough, I think in the studio, I played the piano and I played it in the key of C and I think we dropped, because I couldn't play that, those piano parts like in the key of B, it, it, it got slowed down to the key of B or something silly like that, it pitched down. Yes. But, um, and, at, and, at yeah. this, and at this stage, because obviously the 80s, you know, you're in the Rocky Billy bands, then you're sort of now in a different league, well, different league with, you know, and at the same time there was kind of the Brit pop explosion, but you also worked with Morrissey. Was your own sort of musical education developing a lot at this stage? What was my own, sorry? Your music, your, your creative education, how was that developing during the 90s? Well, I loved the Brit pop scene, but what annoyed me a little bit about the Brit pop scene 
was because we all had quiffs and we all looked like rockers and looked more like the clash or something. We didn't get look, we didn't get looking. We got written off, you know, because we didn't look like mods. Everyone looked like Oasis or Blur. And then you had, Suede was partly prior to Blur and Oasis. Yes. You know, I thought Britpop was a healthy, a really healthy, healthy thing. You know, it was exciting time to go out and see live bands. And, you know, I remember going to Islington and we, me and Spencer and Gaz, we went and saw Echo Belly play. And it was great. They were brilliant, you know. Um, but everyone was wearing like Fred Perry's and that at the mod haircuts. And that, that looked great. That all looked really, really good. But because we didn't have that image, it was like we didn't exist. Yeah. Morrissey was the godfather of Britpop. Yes. And the music in a way. You know, all, all those them. bands that formed in Britpop had gone to see the Smiths in the 80s, bought the C86 cassette, bought the NME and then formed bands and then sort of made quite a lot of money. All the record labels made a lot of money from them. So he was definitely the godfather of that scene. Yeah. And, and we just got written off. It, it, it used to it, it frustrate me quite a lot. You know. Yes. But it was interesting because I heard your interview recently with Steve Jones from the, uh, from the Sex <laughs> Pistols. But you were talking about Elvis, you know, the punks and the, and the Teds. Because I did an interview with Levi and he said the problem was that down in whatever street it was, was it the King's Road, the punks would yeah. always be sort of defacing pictures of Elvis Presley. And that was like not, you know, they would just get chased down the street. Well, yeah. it's, it's funny, you know, again, I was a little bit too young but I'd known a little bit about it because my brother was old enough to be one of the guys that would go down to Chelsea, King's Road and actually put a punk through a shop window, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my brother was a bit of a brawler. He was a rocker, you know. And that's how I got into Eddie Cocker and Gene Vincent Elvis and all that was through my brother because he got into rock and roll somehow quite early on. But when Elvis died, it was a very, very big deal for me. But, you know, back to the, the punks, I think the Teddy Boys felt aggrieved, one, by that kind of action. Like, oh, they defaced pictures of Elvis. That's not cool. Then they wore drape jackets and creepers, but they slashed up the drapes, and they, they took that as an insult as well. Right. They thought that the punks were making fun out of Teddy Boys. And so it got really out of control around 76, 77. And I mean, it was terrible. But I remember even up until the early 80s as well, you know, I'd walk down the street, you know, with a quiff like Rockabilly, totally with the cuffs and boots and everything. If I saw four skinheads, I had to run. Like, literally, I got chased so many times by, like, gangs of skinheads just for the way I looked. It was horrifying. It really, you know, in, in one aspect, it was really great that there were these musical tribes. Yes. But the negative aspect of that was you had to run if you saw, <laughs> if you saw the other tribe, you know? Yeah, you couldn't and, go uh, slash, could you? No, but it was great that, you know, Kids 
growing up, they had something to identify with. It was like, I identify myself with the Ramones, you know? Yeah. Or I want to look like, you know, ACDC, or I want to, you know, I want to look like Elvis, or I want to look like the Pistols, you know? People could identify with, with stuff, but nowadays it seems like music has been devalued so much that it doesn't encourage kids to, you know, get in a garage and form a band. Well, it's interesting because where I grew up, you know, it was quite rocking and heavy metal, I suppose. And the one band you yeah. mustn't, you couldn't say anything about was Status Quo because you would have really got beaten up. And you wouldn't even want to admit... <laughs> I love Status Quo. You wouldn't even want to admit great. you liked um, the beat or anything mod because, again, you'd have just got beaten up. You know, you just had to go, ooh, mirror in the bathroom. I loved, I loved the jam, but I could never have gone to go and see the jam. You know, it's ironic. Enemy championed the jam for about four or five years. They were like the best band, you know, they'd win the best band category from literally 77 to 82. And then they broke up. And then, then it was the Smiths, you know. <laughs> well, the Smiths literally waltzed in when jam split up. Yes, absolutely. But the interesting but, thing yeah, is, you couldn't. We couldn't go. Like I couldn't have a quiff and go and see the jam. I'd have got, would have got beaten up. I know. It's so strange. I love thing. I know that was that was such a strange thing. But the interesting thing with that New York scene that I've sort of done quite a few interviews about and London was that there was so much heroin in New York that sort of wiped out most of those players who either died or had serious drug problems. So <clears throat> fortunately, I guess for you guys, you managed to avoid most of that quite heavy scene. Yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we didn't, we, we stayed. I, I never, never bought into that. And I think maybe it was because, you know, my stepbrother, he unfortunately passed at the age of 18 to a heroin overdose. And it kind of like, woke me up and I was kind of sad, so upset by it that I was like, I vowed to stay away from drugs and drink and, you know, and if I got a break in music, I'd, I'd, I'd want to have something to show for it. In a way, it kind of set me up with a really positive attitude in that way. I never yes. ever took things for granted. You know, when we first joined Morrissey's band, Morrissey said, you know, we might have three good years and bastard's still going, isn't he? You know? <laughs> <laughs> no offence, Moss. Um, <laughs> no, but, you know, I don't know why he said that at the time. Because, you know, he's still going strong. I mean, he'll always... And he's an icon now, isn't he? He is an icon. <laughs> but, but, the inter but the interesting thing with that is that you, you sort of, again, sort of musically were able to sort of work with lots of other people and write with other people so obviously you were also developing your creative kind of journey as well within working with Morrissey and working with other people so you must have you must have been quite fresh and quite sort of keen to sort of keep working those avenues well I think yeah I think you know Morrissey was very astute and very smart he liked again he liked the way we looked but he must have loved you know, he must have loved um, how keen we were, you know, because we, we weren't established. We weren't like the sort of 
great session players that he had playing on the studio stuff. I mean, I'm, I, I feel fortunate that, that we got that chance, really, because he had some great session musicians playing. I mean, like, Boner Drag should have been an album, not a compilation. It should have been an album in its own right, I guess. I mean, just it's so... All that stuff is so well recorded, so well played and timeless. It's well produced too. Yeah. Credit to Stephen Street, you know. And um, yeah, just I, I, I never understood why he didn't take those guys out. To be honest, but I guess he wanted a he wanted a cool looking band, and you know we might not have played that great, but we definitely looked cool. Yeah, and he did, and he was quite aware of the aesthetic. I do, I did sort of dip into his book and um, see, you know, read bits about where he'd go and with somebody to a club, and they pointed out all the kind of the clothing and what people were wearing, and he, you know, so he was obviously quite interested in that rather than just going, well, they've just got a pair of Levi's five hundred ones. They were, he obviously liked a particular image to go go with his own sort of style as well. Stylistic thing, you know. He could relate to it at that time. Um, and the, the great thing was we dressed how we dressed, you know. Like when we played shows or did gigs with Morrissey, we just dressed how we wanted to dress. We weren't told what to wear. We just wore what we wanted to wear. Yes. And I look at those early gigs and I'm thinking, man, dude, we were a really cool-looking band, I've got to say, you know. And so... You know, I didn't, I didn't think that at the time. At the time, I was like, oh, we're really lucky, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, then, but then coming up to the present day, you are still sort of doing your solo work, which I've yeah. noticed a lot of people doing. So how has that sort of been? Because cause I, I guess you probably saw that documentary about sort of, you weren't quite the side person, you know, like they've had those docu films like 20 Feet from the, from the Mic and... Um, you know, there was one with El Slick talking about being a sidekick and not getting in the spotlight of the style. But, but what's it like when you think, right, I'm going to take the, the main lead here? Well, before I joined Morrissey, I wanted to be the front man and my own person. I didn't expect to be kind of somebody's second-hand, you know, right-hand man type thing. Yes. But... It was, it was stupid of me to have ever thought about turning that position down because it actually made me become a better musician. I actually became really good at constructing whole pieces of music and being almost like the band-in-the-box type guy, you know? Yeah. And I would never have gone into that direction had I not joined Morrissey's band. But... The reason why I decided to go solo was that I'd written over a 30 year period, I'd written loads and loads of songs. And I just thought, why, why haven't I released them? And I had no avenue and no ways to, to release them. And so now, you know, I found a way in which it could be released thanks to the help of my good buddy, Darren Neuer. And um, I've decided 
it's time to release my own stuff. And then, you know, luckily I have amazing people playing with me, which uh, one guest you had on not so long ago. Craig. Terrific gentleman. Yes. Um, so I reformed with Gary Day, the original bass player that I played with, and Spencer Coburn, the original drummer. And then I would have asked Boz, but he still plays in Morrissey's band, and I felt he wouldn't have the time to do it. And, you know, it'd be a, a little bit of a conflict of interest. So for the longest time, my dream lineup was like, well, maybe Craig Gannon would be interested in doing it. I never thought he would. And I didn't know Craig until I friended him a few years ago, maybe three or three years ago on Facebook. I sent him a nice message. And, you know, so when, when I spoke to Gary, Gary was like, why don't you reach out to Craig and see if he wants to do it? Do you think he'll, he'll want to do it? He's like, yeah, why not? Got nothing to lose. I was like, you're right. So I reached out to Craig and I was blown away that he was dead interested and wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. Because um, it's a real coup having him playing alongside me. He's such a great lead guitarist. He's really underrated, by the way. He's equally as good as Johnny Marr. You know, and he has his own style and unique way of playing. Because the WAV files that he's sending me via the internet, that because we've been working obviously remotely because of COVID, and I'm trying to work on my third EP, the Tell Me EP. All the boys have tracked on it. And so we've been file sharing, you know, online. But the guitar ideas that he's coming up with on on my songs are just mind-blowing i'm like wow i didn't think of that that's so <laughs> awesome craig good job man you know so you know i'm more of a i think i'm more of a guitarist songwriter like type guy whilst craig is you know he completely is the elite guitarist he's he's brilliant he's absolutely brilliant such a such a joy to have him play with us and everybody in the band is so happy that he's playing with us and he's such a nice guy too can't yes. wait to actually meet him in person Insane. <laughs> like so is it, i mean i know it's a bit of a strange strange year and decade and, and god knows what's going to happen um, but is there is there sort of going to be plans to possibly put a band on the road for a, for some live dates? Well, yeah. I mean, last July, um, I had a tour set up in the UK, and you know, unfortunately, COVID hit and it got pushed back. So hopefully, in twenty twenty one, yes, which would be thirty years since Gary Spencer and myself embarked on the Kill Uncle tour. So it could be quite interesting, these gigs next year. Um, along with Craig, we hope to get out and actually do some shows in the UK. And I'm trying to get uh, a, a relatively great booking agent over here in the US too, to get some gigs lined up here. Yeah. 
I mean, is it because um, I, re I remember sort of it was one of the members of the Shadows talking about their life and saying when they were on stage, they'd often, you know, members of the band would look at each other and have that smile thinking, I can't believe we're still doing this after all these decades. Do you and also Gary and, and the other members have that same feeling like, God, you know, this, this thing that we were doing in the 80s is still going. We, we sort of navigated it and look at us here it, now. It, it is amazing, really. It's amazing that there's, there's still people that would be interested. And we're really excited because the irony is now is that we're, we're better players now. They're all amazing players. Gary's an amazing bass player. He's probably the best natural bass player I've ever played with. If you ask me who the best bass player is for Morrissey, other than Andy Rock, I'd say Gary Day. And Spenny's a terrific drummer. He's also an amazing piano player. And not many people know that. He's, um, he's a really fantastic musician, Spencer, not just a drummer. He's a great musician. And then Craig is, is a beast on guitar. I think he was kind of withheld and held down a little bit when he played with the Smiths, to be honest. Yes. You know, because obviously Johnny was a very important, integral member of that band. Um, I mean, I could have asked Johnny, but Johnny, <laughs> Johnny <laughs> has his own solo career and uh, yeah. is, is very busy. And I got well, actually, I suppose what, what's been a nice guy. What was quite lucky or good for you guys was that you had each other, whereas I think with Craig, he was quite young and he was in this band that already had a slightly dysfunctional quality about him. And I don't think it probably did his mental health much good, really. So, you know what I mean? Well, image-wise, it's ironic. When, we, when I look at... Because we morphed um, the Your Arsenal album cover and we threw in a young picture of Craig next to all of us. And it's like, this is crazy. He could have been one of us like easily totally fits in like with Gary and Spenny and myself and um you know he's he's only I think he's only a year older than me maybe so he's a roughly he's roughly the same age as, as all, all of us and um no, he's a great fit I just um yeah, I'm really, really excited. I think I think these shows are going to be so fun. And the only reason we're doing it, again, is for fun reasons. I just figured, like, why not? Fans want to see us play together again. And, you know, we can throw in some songs and from that era and, and really get people charged up. Yeah. Let's go out and have some fun, you know. So do and, you, um, with your songwriting, because you've worked with Morrissey, obviously, and a lot of other people, do you sort of, have you sort of been quite amazed with looking at your CV of what, what you managed to sort of pull together and, and who you've worked with? Because you are sort of a bit like a, is it Guy Chambers kind of character? Kind of being able to sort of write such kind of memorable lyrics. It does amaze me. I mean, <laughs> you know, my resume looks pretty pretty good you know quite a large volume of of songs with Morrissey and then you know I have some mainstream cuts with uh like one song with Madonna and one song with Rihanna and Chris Brown and Black Eyed Peas and you know Vivi Brown like 
some mainstream stuff is crazy but um work is work isn't it you know i'm not gonna yeah. shy away from it and uh i'm just grateful that i can still get by and could still be involved in music somehow yeah you know? so if you if you were to be able to give your 18 year old self any advice after all these decades of doing music and showbiz and obviously surviving it because you've seen lots of casualties. I mean, what, what would you have kind of whispered in their ear? I guess I would have whispered something like, you know, it's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, enjoy the ride or something. I could have enjoyed it better because there were times where I had personal struggles and all kinds of things, but you know, I could have handled some things a little bit better, but you know, you can't really go back on what could have been or might have been or should have been. Or <laughs> well, I suppose what you know. slightly off, I don't know, but Morrissey, not Morrissey, Lenny and Bowie, when they ever talked about their very early musical influences, both said Little Richard and then they mentioned Elvis. But Little, it was often, you know, and as Lenny used to always say, Motorhead, you know, we're Motorhead and we play rock and roll. So that's kind of good. But Lenny also did say that you can never really have a relationship when you're in a band. Do you sort of also feel that that kind of struggle is too much as a creative artist? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Um, not really. I, I think it's, it's how you deal with it. You know, me personally, I got, I guess I got, tired of feeling like I was working for somebody. So I don't want to, I don't want to have that kind of attitude in my band. You know, all right, I've mainly written most of the songs, but I'm open to co-writing with, with, with the guys and I'm gonna make sure that they're taken care of, you know, and that they are treated with the utmost respect and and you know it's gonna be a all for one, one for all type thing. You know, a bit more, a bit more honest than true. Yeah, I hope because if if you have a good foundation and you have the right attitude, I mean, it really depends. I mean, everybody has to kind of be running at the same pace, you know, to a certain degree, but. Does that get more difficult or trickier when you get as you get older? Because you know, obviously, when you're young, you're sort of living hand in mouth, probably in sort of each other's flats, kind of. You know, not sitting. really. I think. I think again, it's just you know, sitting down, having conversations, and with the guys and saying, "Hey, look, we got this option. We could do this, 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 and this. What do you think? You up for doing it? Yeah, I can do that. All right, let's go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um. No, I, I want to take care of the boys, you know, in the right way, like how I'd like to be treated. So, yes, no, and I think that's why, I think that's why they they want to play with me, you know, because they know they 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 uh, they trust me, and you know, it's a group it's a group effort, you know, it's gonna be fun. It's were gonna you be just fun. were you just very wise? 
and mature sort of being able to quickly think by I'm co-writing this you know so you didn't have one of those kind of stories where you thought oh my name's not on the writing credits did you were you just a little bit more kind of hip to the trip I think I always um I always made my demos sound quite good I suppose and maybe my demos, if we're talking about right for Morrissey, say, I think I was clued up to what he wanted to hear. So I kind of had an idea of like, well, if I write this, I think he could write to this. Yeah. I think this would be up his alley, you know? And sure enough, he'd, he'd be like, that's fantastic. I've written to it. Oh, great. Okay. I remember him saying, <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a very famous thing. And I said this on Steve Jones' show too. And I said it on TV show, but he was funny. He's like, you know, I wrote to your tune, but you aren't like the title. I was like, oh, oh, what's the title? The National Front Disco. I was like, oh my God, Mars, are you going to try and get us killed? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... A lot of the time with the Your Arsenal songs, it was really funny because we had no idea what the titles of the songs were or what was going to be sung. So we go and play You're the One for Me Fatty, and we didn't know it was called You're the One for Me Fatty. <laughs> and he starts singing, he's like, You're the one for me, fatty. Did, she, did he just say fatty? Wait. Did he say Hattie or Fatty? <laughs> we were thinking Hattie Jakes, you know, because yeah. he had that whole thing about carry on. My God, yes. really good say Fatty. And it was hilarious. We'd all start bursting out laughing, you know. But, so do um, you, I mean, do you sort of feel, because I was a little bit obsessed with Smith just a bit, did you, do you sort of feel that provocative side that he had, or sometimes I'm sure he's not going to like that, is that a quite a fine line that he's played recently? Um, I think he's always had that. But, you know, in the earlier days, he definitely had that. It's like sometimes I thought, geez, man, he's just trying to write a song with a crazy title, you know. But then you hear something like, we hate when our friends become successful. And if you actually learn the lyrics or read the lyrics they're brilliant you know he yeah. conveys total northern jealousy of people that really don't have nothing and if one of their own makes it you know they're super jealous and they're hateful and you know he, he nails it like it's it's brilliant absolutely brilliant so i always thought what was interesting like the smiths the music and the singing and lyrics, it was almost like piano because the left hand is doing something different to the right hand, you know, meaning sometimes Morrissey's vocal melody is completely like in a different time to the actual music. So when you, when you try and learn like a Smith's or a Morrissey song, sometimes it's really difficult because it's like he's singing against the timing backdrop of the actual song. You get yeah. what I mean? And uh, 
that's really what's unique, I think, about Morrissey lyrically and the music fitting with Morrissey's vocal, yeah. you know. Because there was, you know, I mean, a few decades or years after that, you did the uh, You Are The Quarry with First of the Gang To Die, which again is kind of very much, you know, one of those instant classics, isn't it? He's just, um, he's, you know, it's funny because he can't. And I think the reason that the music and his songs come about and sound the way that they do are because he cannot play a single instrument. <laughs> so it's like he's, he's literally like a poet onto a record you know, onto music and however way it fits, fits, you know? Like yeah. that weird rhyming couplet, it's like, did you see the jealousy and eyes of the ones staying left behind? You know, it's not, it's not conventional, you're like, whoa, you know? Um, or there'd be like, I'm trying to think of that, uh, another lyric. Well, like our oh, Frank is a great example, you know? I never realized you could write couplet rhymes, meaning you have a rhyme shortly after a word. I used to always think, oh, you know, you got a rhyme at the end of every line, right? Yes. Oh, Frank, you're frankly vulgar <laughs> in the red pullover. Now see how the two colors blend. You know, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Red pullover, vulgar, that's brilliant. You know, so, you know, sometimes he doesn't have rules. I guess for him is what, what sounds good to his ear, lyrically rhyming. And yeah. that's brilliant. That's really unique. Because I did this interview with Mark Saunders, who's a producer, and he did lots of stuff in the UK, then went to America and worked with people like Marilyn Manson, but just said that sometimes the American musicians were almost too good. So when he was trying to get them to, can we sort of experiment and do this, this, and they go, no, you can't, that doesn't work. Because they've all been sort of well colleged and they all know music theory. And he's thinking, yeah. Yeah, they're all being too technical. Yeah. yeah. And he yeah. said that it was kind of strange. There was this guitarist from Marilyn Manson had all the taps and he sort of picked up his guitar and played this amazing sort of bluegrass. And he was like, and, and it was almost, he could see like the shock in Mark's face. And he was like, oh yeah, I used to work with, you know, Katie Lang. He's like, God, what, with all those tattoos? But you know, it was a bit like, yeah, he could just play anything. It was like, it's all just too perfect almost. It's like. Well, it's interesting. We've had this conversation. I've had this conversation with a friend and, and with another, I think in an interview, I did an interview about that. I found that the American musicians are absolutely brilliant. Like you said, they're, they're technically phenomenal. But weirdly enough, maybe the rain and the grimness of England just creates the best bands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like out pop Supergrass and Radiohead, who are brilliant. They're brilliant yes. musically too. But, you know, bar say bands like Pearl Jam, and Nirvana, The Strokes, and, you know, I'm trying to think of some other, maybe I missed out on, a, you know, White Stripes and missed out on a few American indie bands, but they don't come close to the English indie bands like 
Blur or, you know, Radiohead, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Franz Ferdinand, you know. I missed the killers, didn't I? They're a good American band. Um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It, it, it's it's different. The Americans are probably, they're, they're so good musically, almost too good musically, I think, you know. But they're going to miss bands like The Enemy that grew up in Coventry. Like, where the hell's Coventry? And how grim <laughs> is Coventry? Yeah. You know? Well, I suppose it's like, like, like you know. bands, you know. I suppose you gave yeah. bands. I know, <laughs> this is good. But look, this is fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing. So, um, and just like, you know, I've been enjoying your solo work for the last few days. So, you know, best of luck for that for the... Uh, next year well you know i'm i'm so underground that i'm actually six feet underground right? <laughs> um <laughs> no but no not many people have have realized i've put out two eps and the enemy hasn't even noticed that i reformed with gary spencer and craig and you know in the old days that would have been like enemy news so yes. i'm very diy underground but hopefully you know next year Maybe some eyebrows will raise and maybe I won't be six feet underground anymore. Well, it is interesting. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it is a little bit interesting because there are just, you know, having been interviewing all these um, bands and musicians, most people are still making lots of music, aren't they? You know, they're all still, you know. They, from... they are. I think the problem is, you know, the digital age and the now, now generation and just how things are now that, you know, there are a lot of really good bands, but they're just not being heard, you know. Um, you know, unless you've got mainstream corporate backing or you're, you know, you have to be incredibly organised, yes. which I'm working on and hoping to become so I can get this up and running. I mean, really, to be honest, like I said, we're doing it for fun reasons. Want to play to people, want them to have a great time. We want to have fun. And obviously, you know, we want to get paid for doing it and hopefully we do okay. But, um, you know, we just, we just want to keep good music alive, I guess. Well, I I'm guess doing it for real, you know. I'm not doing it for fame and fortune. That's not what re really what it's about. And anyway, that doesn't really kind of exist anymore. It doesn't, <laughs> it's doesn't. Not Champagne 80s supernova period, you know. No, it's definitely not. And then Morrissey got dropped from his record label this week, so. I don't know if he did. I mean, that's interesting. I'm not sure if he did get dropped. He might have, you know, I think his contract was up. With BMG, and maybe they just didn't renew or offer him a new contract. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. Right. I have no idea. But you know, he, he's going to be all right. He's he can always. He's written so many great songs, and he's such a he's he is the best lyricist, without doubt that I've ever worked with. You know, he's yes. amazing. He's up there with Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan, and even those guys are in a different kind of avenue to him yeah. but he's one of the best I have to say the best. He, yeah and and they're 
there aren't that many people that you listen to a lyric and you kind of remember decades later and you still think, you know, and it's a bit like David Bowie, they were able to write those moments where, you know, you still think, wow, that's still an amazing, why does that work? Bowie, and, Bowie had an interesting, Bowie had an interesting way of writing lyrics in the 70s. He actually used the visual concept of montage, meaning he'd write lines out on a piece of paper, cut those lines out and then rearrange them. Yes. And that's why, you know, some of those 70s records, the lyrics are so off the wall and so off kilter. It's absolutely genius in some ways. Nobody yes. had done that before. The cut up. We move like tigers on Vaseline. I still think it's a great line. And you don't What's know that? What we move like tigers on Vaseline was one of his lines that he, from, wow. I think it's on Zig, it's one of the Ziggy Stardust tracks. I can't, hang on to yourself. That was the, the track, hang on to yourself. He's brilliant. Like I, I remember seeing an interview with him and Morrissey and both said, God, you know, I can't believe I'm still, I've had so much sex. I can't believe I'm still alive. Morrissey chimed in like, I've had so little sex. I'm surprised I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Something like along those lines. It was just really funny, you know, to see. <laughs> but um, oh, were you were you in the band when they did Cosmic Dancer? Yes, because that was um, filmed at the Forum in Los Angeles in 1991. So that was during a Kill Uncle tour, and we actually didn't know that he was getting on stage. You know, yeah. So we were just as surprised as the the band was just as surprised as the um, the crowd. You know, I heard this voice. I was like, "Where's that coming from?" I was dancing with Nama Zone. I was like, "What? The <laughs> Holy shit! It's David Bowie!" <laughs> it was a good year for haircuts as well, wasn't it? Did you notice the hair? Sorry. It was a good year for haircuts. Did you notice their haircuts on that video? They're just stunning. They look so beautiful. Have you seen the video with those two walking on, you know, them on stage and Morrissey really smiling and, and, Mor and Bowie looking so yeah. beautiful? Yeah, I mean, I never understood this whole beef that supposedly there was between Morrissey and Bowie because yes. but I just personally... Kind of... Bowie, Bowie was always very pleasant and very nice whenever I met him. He seemed like a really down-to-earth, genuine kind of guy. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think the press have blown that all out of proportion. Morrissey completely, you know, looked up to Bowie, no doubt about it. You know. Yeah, but no, I was just saying about their hair, both their haircuts were just stunning at that particular moment in the video yeah it was it was a good yeah it was a good time wasn't it Bowie always had really good hair didn't he he always had he always good looked hair. Good. so yeah. that was so that was the tour that uh, that you were supporting Bowie or was that was that a different experience no no we supported Bowie well we we did a a, a joint tour a co-headline tour they call it um with Bowie uh, that was in 95, 96. Right. And I don't know what happened, but we were up in Aberdeen, Scotland. And um, the tour manager comes in. He says, boys, boys, listen, we're not doing the show tonight. It's over. Morrissey's gone home. I'm like, what the hell happened? <laughs> like, this was like 10, 15 minutes before going on stage. And um, 
that was it. I don't know. I don't know what happened. It was. It was odd. Very strange. But was that the only time that anything like that has happened in your musical career? No, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Like Morrissey, sometimes would fall ill. He'd get a really bad cold, can sing or something, you know, and he'd have to cancel a show. But, you know, Mozart, he's his own guy, you know. If he doesn't want to do something, he won't do it. We could be at the airport and they'd be like, all right, let's go. Uh, no, it's not happening. Morrissey wants to go home. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or he didn't show up. Oh, boy. Okay. I guess that's not going to happen then, you know? Yes. It's it's part of, I think that's part of the genius, though, in him, in a way. You know, that's probably what makes him a really good observer, lyrically, and all that stuff, you know? If everything was plain sailing, it would probably be really land and mainstream wouldn't it did, did you worry or not worry did you did you get someone to write the read the book before you looked at it his, his, well, his book yeah no i haven't i haven't read it but i saw somebody had highlighted a lot of the things that were said and to be honest you know that they're, they're not true they're not true that some of the things that i supposedly had said or done or whatever you know i was like Wow, that's no. I wasn't coming from that that angle at all. That's that's completely wrong. And you know, we we did um, connect via email, Morrissey and I, a few years ago, and he actually apologised about you know things that were said in the book to me. I said that's all right. It's okay. You know. Yes. And. Um, it's really nice to hear from you. How are you? You know, and uh, I don't know it. And then he disappeared. You know, like he <laughs> does. <laughs> Vanishing email and where is he? <laughs> but you know, no, it, it was nice. He said, "Oh, you know, you, you've done a video. I'd like to see your video. Can you send me the video?" So I sent him the experiment video which was the first song off the uh, first EP that I put out solo. He said, oh, you still look the same. It's really great. You must be proud. It sounds really good. And I was, he was really nice, you know. Yes. Uh, Do you think one day uh, you'll probably work together again? i never rule it out, I guess. I mean, it, it would be great to do it with the original guys in a band. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't think I could do it with just the people that he has playing with him now. But if it was all the original guys in the band, then it made sense to do it. And sure, you know, it'd be definitely something to think about. For sure, I wouldn't rule it out. But you know, to be honest, I think he's quite happy and comfortable with where he's at, and and um, I'm focusing more on this solo venture that I have going on with Gary yes. Spencer and Craig. We're really excited to see where that goes and um, working very hard to release the, the third EP, new EP, Tell Me EP, which 
all the guys are, are playing on it. So it'll be the first EP with with that lineup. And I, I'm really excited. I, I just hope COVID um, eventually dissipates and everything can get back to somewhat some kind of normal and everyone can get out and do and it. play and meet people and have fun again. God, yes, I know. It's, it's kind of dry. Well, you're in LA. Jesus, we're in England. I mean, it's a bit depressing. <laughs> yeah, you guys are in a second lockdown right now, right? Well, it's just the weather. You know, you just kind of, it gets dark yeah. at four o'clock and it's pretty, it's a bit of a grind at the moment. Cause it gets the dark here at five o'clock. It gets dark here an hour later right. than England. But yeah, it's pretty bleak in England this time of year, isn't it? There's, when there's nothing on the calendar apart from dentists and doctor appointments, you just think, fuck me, it's a bit of... Well, I haven't been to the dentist. I haven't... I try to avoid going to doctors because of the COVID situation. There's so many things can't really do, so... Yes, I know. I've got to make sure I don't fall over and break my neck or something, you know. <laughs> yes, well, I know. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you. And thank you for um, yes. inviting me onto your show. I've seen the list of guests and the people you've met. Absolutely wonderful. Keep on doing what you're doing, man. I, I guess I'll be trucking on. The great thing is, Anna McGee listens to all these. He's really obsessed with them, the old Anna. But he's just put a festival on next year. So um, he's very keen still. Alan McGee's such a cool dude. I actually become friends with him too not so long ago and um yeah alan man you should get me on your gigs come on dude <laughs> <laughs> i'll have a word with him no he's a, a great guy he's got really good taste in music and uh you know i mean he saw the brilliance in oasis it didn't hurt him did it you know no i like i like the fact i like he he's he's been involved in such great stuff that's gritty and has attitude and um, is real. You know, he's got really good taste in music. So I wish him all the best. Alan McGee's top man. Top man. He is a top man. Yeah. And, uh, there's a lot of, actually, most people I interview, you just think, actually, they're all pretty good. So it's all good stuff. Right. I better let you go. But thanks again and uh, take care. See you around. A pleasure, man. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Take care. All the best. See you. Bye. Bye. There you go. I like to leave the the last bits in because this has that awkward, how do you say goodbye? There you go. Like that, I guess. Anyway, look, that was me and David Eastor in conversation with the guitarist and songwriter Alan White talking about life, love, poetry. Um, thank you ever so much. You can find more information about Alan on his website. Just Google Alan White, spelled A-L-A-I-N. Then it's W-H-Y-T-E. You probably knew that, but I just thought I'd spell it anyway. And if you want to contact me for some random reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that's C86Show, keep it positive. And all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. That's it. Have a great week. Bye.